Well, good morning. Very, very good to be with you uh, this morning. So I come via uh, the city of Kansas City. Anyone? Okay. <laughs> so earlier, I met a couple people that were from Kansas City. I, I got to tell you a crazy story. Last night, we were at Third Space Coffee Shop and uh, had a conversation with the lady there, and I found out that her brother-in-law was my son's science teacher in Kansas City. So small world, right? But I wouldn't want to paint it, right? Remember that, Stephen Wright? Those of you that are old like me. You know, you, all right. So, um, so yeah, in Kansas City, I've uh, been there for about 15 years. Uh, married my wife, Michelle, for 25 years. We have a 24-year-old son named Joshua. And, in fact, it's kind of crazy, but one of his best friends moved to Colorado Springs just a few months ago, and he's here this morning. So, hello, Sam. Hate to put you on the spot. But, um, so, 25-year-old son, a 19-year-old son, and a 9-year-old daughter. So, I know some of you are thinking, what's up with that? Why does this old guy have a nine-year-old daughter? So uh, like many of you I know in this room, we, over the years, we've uh, done lots and lots of foster care. I mean, we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of kids come through our home. So I'm just glad there was only one my wife decided we couldn't live without. So we adopted the, the nine-year-old about uh, probably four, maybe almost five years ago. Um, so here's what I'd like to do this morning to start off uh, a little differently. We're going to start off with a word association game. So... You guys look like a pretty safe group, but we're about to find out, I guess. Uh, so here's how it's going to work. I'm going to throw out, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to just instantly shout out the first thing that comes to mind. Anyone nervous? <laughs> I am a little bit, actually. Um, so don't shout out what you think I might want to hear. I want you to just shout out, really, the first thing. Don't craft the response. You know, just first thing that comes to your mind, shout it out, Okay. <laughs> You ready? <laughs> I'm not sure I be, should be doing this, actually. But here we go. Here's the word. Ready? The word is missionary. Africa. Every time someone says Africa. So that's good, though. Good answer. What else? Good. Tent? Did you say tent? What? Foreign lands, I heard. What else? I heard sacrifice messed up. Okay. Um, not sure what to do with that. Um, that's always the hard thing about doing this, but... Um, all right, good answers, good answers, uh, most of them at least. So here's kind of a funny thing. When you look the word missionary up in the dictionary, you'll find something like this. It'll say someone sent on a mission. Wow, that's helpful, isn't it? Don't you hate when the dictionary does that? You look up a word and it uses the form of the word you're looking up to define that word. It's like that's not very helpful. Well, think about that word mission for a minute. So missionary is someone sent on a mission. So you know, kind of depending on your background, you might kind of come up with different ideas or have different thoughts when you hear the word mission. I mean, for example, um, you know, if you're ever in the military, you hear the word mission, you probably think of a military mission. We kind of mobilize troops and, and send them on a mission. Uh, if you're old like me, you might think of a, 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 a very well-known television series a long time ago called Mission Impossible. Remember that? And I know some of you younger ones are saying, that was a television series? No, that was just a series of movies. Uh, if you're in the business world, you might think of a little statement or a little phrase. Sometimes we talk about mission statements. And you know what a mission statement is? is a mission statement is just a, uh, a sentence or two that is supposed to define or describe what an organization does. And the reality is I think every single church in North America has a mission statement. And that mission statement is supposed to define what the church does. It, it, this is what we do is what the mission statement is really supposed to be about. Well, it's interesting if you look at the word mission up in the dictionary. Now, this might not sound very helpful, but I actually think it is. 
If you look at the word mission up in the dictionary, you'll find something like this. It'll say relating to, sending, or being sent. Now, again, that might sound not as very helpful, but I actually think it's profound. Mission is related to either sending or being sent. Well, I would argue for the vast majority of churches in North America, we focus way more time, attention, and energy on sending than we do being sent. And that's a little bit of what I'd like to talk about this morning. For just a few minutes, I want to kind of challenge the way you might think of the word missionary. I want to challenge a little bit of the way you might think of the word mission. And I want to challenge a little bit maybe the way you think of the difference between sending and being sent. And to do that, I want to share four super simple little statements that I'm convinced ought to actually kind of define who we are as followers of Jesus. I think these four little statements should inform and kind of shape who we are as followers of Jesus. It's super simple. Uh, But here's the first one. The first little statement is that God is a sending God. God is a sender. (laughs) That might sound kind of strange or funny, but God's been a sender for a very long time. All the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram out and he sends Abram to be a new nation, to be a new people. Really, remember to bless the nations through his lineage. Well, we see this, there's this thing called sending language where God is constantly calling men and women out and he's sending them into his redemptive purposes. We see it in all the historical books of the Old Testament. It's even in the poetic books of the Old Testament, but it's especially prominent in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So really, when you think about the prophets of the Old Testament, they were people that God called out and he sent them for different reasons, but all of those reasons were related to God's mission. They were related to God's redemptive purposes. So there's just an interesting little fact. There's a Hebrew verb in the Old Testament. It, the, the word is, is, is pronounced shalak, but it's a Hebrew verb that we translate to send. Well, in the Old Testament, that little verb is used 800 times. And 200 of those 800 times, it's used with God as the subject. In other words, it's God is the one who calls out, and it's God who sends or commissions people into his mission. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to share with you just a couple examples of this sending language in Scripture. So you just kind of get the the power of this language, and then don't worry, we're going to get to why does this even matter? I mean, what's the practical implications of, of, of recognizing that God is a sending God? Well, when you think of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, there's one particular passage that probably comes to the mind of most people. If you think of sending in the Old Testament, anyone, is there a particular verse that kind of jumps out to you that you think about when you think of sending language in a prophetic book of the Old Testament? Anyone? Yeah, exactly right. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. So I want to read that passage here in just a second. But I, I like to use this as one example of those 200 examples because most people are familiar with this verse. But the other thing that's interesting about this verse is that Hebrew verb is used twice in one single passage. So many of you know it. It goes like this. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? So get it. God is looking for someone to send. So he's looking for someone that he could kind of call out from their regular rhythms of life, and he wants to send them into some plans that he has that this person really doesn't know about. So he's looking for someone to send. And then the rest of the passage, it says, whom shall I send into, I'm sorry, it says, and then who will go for us? 
So it's interesting in this passage, there's kind of like this Trinitarian fullness of God's sending nature. Because God doesn't just say, who can I send? But he says, who's going to go for us? And most Old Testament scholars say he's talking about the Trinity here. I mean, he's saying, who's going to go for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And then, you know, Isaiah's response, it says, I said, here am I, send me. So I like to share this as one example of, of hundreds of examples in the Old Testament, because that, that verb is used twice, because most people know this passage. But the third reason I like to share this as a really beautiful, powerful example is because of something that happens later in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 6, God's looking for someone to send. Who am I, who's going to go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then in Isaiah 61, Isaiah is reflecting on the things that God has sent him to do. So some Old Testament scholars call these redemptive deeds. In other words, there's these nine things that God wants Isaiah to engage in. There's nine parts of God's mission that he has sent Isaiah into. Now I want to read this passage as one example, but let me set this up for just a second. What's interesting is in most English translations, it renders that Hebrew verb that I told you about one time, and then it lists the redemptive deeds. But the interesting thing is in the Hebrew structure, every one of those redemptive deeds actually flows out of that verb. Or another way to say it is it's dependent upon that verb. So I like to read it like that, just as it kind of adds power to this sending language. If you go back and read, he has sent me with each of those redemptive deeds. Okay, so the other, one other thing about this passage, we're going to read it, and, there, and then, and like I said, we're going to talk about why does this even matter. But the other thing about this passage that's interesting is as I start to read it, I'll bet most of you are going to think, that sounds really familiar. But you might think, I don't think I'm familiar with Isaiah 61. Well, the reason, if you're not familiar with Isaiah 61, and if this passage sounds familiar, it's because Jesus makes personal application of this passage to his own ministry in Luke chapter 4. So you remember the story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes into a synagogue and they unroll a scroll and they read a passage of scripture and in a sense Jesus says, that's me. <laughs> in a sense Jesus says, that's my mission statement. I mean Jesus says, what you just read, that's what I've been sent and called to do. Well that passage they read in the synagogue that day, it's this passage. So I think it ought to add like extra significance for us to pay attention to what Isaiah says God has sent him to do. Does that make sense? So here, here's how it goes. It's Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then Isaiah says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives. He has sent me to release from darkness the prisoners. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has sent me to comfort all who mourn. He has sent me to provide for those who grieve in Zion. He has sent me to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. He has sent me to bestow the oil of joy instead of mourning. And lastly, he says, he has sent me to bestow a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Isn't that a beautiful passage? He has sent me, he has sent me, he has sent me. I would actually add, for me, Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3, for me, is kind of a picture of what I would call a robust gospel. It's kind of a comprehensive gospel. In other words, I think what God has called and sent Isaiah to do is exactly the same thing he has called and sent every single one of us to do. 
So the first point I want you to get this morning is that God is a sending God. God is a sender. But the second point is that the sending God sends the Son. So John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, God the Father sends the Son. When you move in, I just said in all the Old Testament, 800 times that Hebrew verb is used. Well, when you move into the New Testament, this sending language, it's in all the Gospels, it's in the book of Acts, it's in all of Paul's epistles. Uh, but the most, probably the most powerful or most beautiful example of sending language in the New Testament is the Gospel of John. So think about it like this. The Gospel of John, it opens with the incarnation. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. In other words, God the Father sends the Son. That's the ultimate sending, is it not? The Gospel of John opens with John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and then it closes with John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says this. He says, just as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And in between those two verses, 40 times, Jesus refers to himself as the one sent by the Father. So God the Father is a, is a sender. God is a sender. But the second point is God sends the Son. The third point is God sends the Spirit. So it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, there's one passage that Jesus talks about God sending the Spirit, and there's another passage where Jesus says, I'll send the Spirit. So let me just read those. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, This counselor is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. And then two chapters later, Jesus says, If I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So God is a sending God. The sending God sends the Son. And the sending God, and really the Spirit, the sending God and the Son send the Spirit. So here's what we see in the Gospels. God the Father sending the Son. God the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. And here's the fourth point. That God the Father sends the church. So in other words, God the Father sends the Son. God the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And God the Father and the Son and the Spirit send the church. So here's where we get real practical. Why does it matter that we recognize the sending language in Scripture? Why does it matter that we see the sending language throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why does it matter that we see that God is actually a sending missionary God? Why does it matter we actually, the whole grand narrative of Scripture, I mean, the overarching story of all the Scripture, scripture it's all about God's mission. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about God reconciling a broken world and creation back to himself. It's really about creation to recreation. It's all about God's mission. Why is that important? Here's why I think it's important. If God is a missionary God, and he is, then we as his people are missionary people. So here's probably my favorite way to say it. The church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionaries. See, individually and collectively, we are a sent missionary people. Here's another way I'll say it sometimes. I'll say, I think we often wrongly assume that the primary activity of God is in the church. Now, is God active and involved in the church? Absolutely. But I would argue the primary activity of God is actually in the world, and the church is an instrument created by God to be sent into the world to participate in what he's already doing. There's a little theological phrase, it's actually a Latin phrase, called missio dei. And missio dei is just a little Latin phrase meaning mission of God. And the point of that is to say, it's not really about our mission. It's, not, it's really not about our mission statement. 
It's all about God's mission. It's all about what God is doing. God is a sending missionary God who's reconciling all of creation back to himself, and he created the church to engage in his mission. So here's kind of a silly way to say it sometimes. God's church really doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. That sounds like semantics, but it's very profound. But it's profound because it didn't come from me, all right? I stole it from someone else. But let me say it again. God's church doesn't really have a mission. Rather, God's mission has a church. So again, God is at work in the world, and he's created the body of Christ. He's created the church to be sent into the world to participate in what he's already doing. So we need to see we are a sent missionary person, and then collectively we are a sent missionary people. Does that make sense? So I want to show you a little visual here. This is super simple. It's just three little slides. But the little visual that I think helps to kind of drive home this point that we must, we must recognize ourselves as a sent missionary people. It's this little kind of missiological tool. It's called cultural distance. It's super simple, but here's how it works. So it says to grasp the importance of the church as the missionary. Again, remember, we don't just send and support missionaries. We do that, and that's a good thing. But we need to see ourselves individually and collectively as the sent missionary people. So to grasp the importance of the church as the missionary, consider this idea called cultural distance. This is a tool that we can use to discern just how far a single person or a people group is from a meaningful engagement with the gospel. So here's how this works. Those numbers there, one, two, three, four, it could go out to five, six, seven, eight. Every one of those numbers represents what's called a cultural barrier. And all that a cultural barrier is, is something that gets in the way of you fully understanding another person and eventually having a meaningful conversation with them. So it's something that gets in the way of you really knowing who they are and where they're coming from and uh, really understanding what they're saying and then having this meaningful dialogue, right? Well, what's the most obvious cultural barrier? Language, right? Yeah, I mean, if someone speaks a different language than you, it's really difficult to fully understand who they are and where they're coming from. But a lot of times I'll kind of jokingly say, it might not be a completely different language. I mean, I have a 19-year-old son, and there's some days I have no idea what he's talking about. So I'm pretty sure it's English, but it's like, Caleb, I don't, I don't know. What, what does that even mean? You know? But there's so much more than just language. There's all co- other kinds of cultural barriers that kind of make it difficult for us to understand some people. So I just listed some of them at the bottom of the slide there. Of course, language. But then there's beliefs and traditions, their family background, their history, their cultural experiences, their past religious views, their current religious views, all of those can kind of get in the way. Well, here's why this is significant for understanding we are a sent missionary people. Let's look at the next slide. It says, remember, it is we who are the sent missionary people of God, right? If God is a missionary God, then we as his people are missionary people. Individually and collectively, we are missionaries. We are sent missionary people which will sometimes mean we must go to where people are. If we fail to go to the people, then to encounter the gospel meaningfully, they must come to us. This is the inbuilt assumptions, I would say, of the vast majority of churches in North America. In other words, I would say the vast majority of churches in North America, we kind of do church in this bubble between M0 and M1. And what I mean by that is M0 is where there's no cultural barriers. Like everyone looks the same, they talk the same, they smell the same, (laughs) they kind of come from the same part of town. You know, education and income and housing is all pretty similar. 
And most churches, they operate or kind of live between M0 until they kind of butt up against the first significant cultural barrier, and they kind of stop, and they kind of live in that bubble. Well, the inbuilt assumption of the vast majority of churches in North America is that if we get church just right in that bubble, we can motivate them to cross the barriers to come be with us and be like us. So it says this is the inbuilt assumption of many churches, and it requires that the non-believer do the cross-cultural work and not us. Last slide. Here's why this is so significant. And make no mistake, for many, 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 many people, just coming to a church service or a church program or activity involves some serious cross-cultural work. And here, here's the sentence that I hope will stick in your mind today. When we ask them to come to us, we are in essence asking them to be the missionary. That's messed up. That's a good theological phrase there, messed up. But I mean, do you get how messed up that is? That we think we, we want to motivate them to cross the barriers because we've lost the reality that we are a sent missionary people. We're the ones that have been called out by God and sent into his redemptive purposes. Well, practically speaking, here's how I want us to close. Practically speaking, then, what does this look like? I mean, what does it look like for me to kind of embrace this missio de theology sort of idea on a, daily, on a daily basis? I mean, what does it look like for me to realize I'm a sent missionary person to places that God has already sent me? Once I get to those places, what, is, what am I to do? What does it look like for me to kind of live out this kind of mindset in the places that God has sent me? Well, I'm gonna share with you four D words this is super, super simple. Um, in fact, every time I say that, I think of a good friend of mine from Australia. His name is Alan Hirsch. When he talks about something that's simple, uh, he mixes his metaphors. He always says, this isn't rocket surgery. I always say, no, Alan, it's rocket science or it's brain <laughs> surgery. It's not rocket surgery, okay? But just, I say that just to say, this ain't rocket surgery, okay? This is super simple, but I hope it'll be a helpful, really practical way for you to kind of think about what does this look like for me to live this out on a daily basis, all right? So here's the first D word. The first D word is simply discover. So see, think about it like this. If it's really, really, really all about God's mission, if it's really about what God is doing, it's not about my human ingenuity or how smart I am or, or my strategy. If it's really all about what God's doing in the world, then the first thing I have to do is discover what's God doing in the world. So the first question is, what is God doing? Well, one of the implications of that is that we have to become great observers. We have to become great listeners. We, we need to be tapping into all of our senses. So in other words, when we go into our neighborhoods and we go into our workplaces and we go into the social spaces that we inhabit, we need to be great at paying attention. Sometimes I'll call it the art of noticing that we, we, need to be, we really need to cultivate our ability to notice what's going on. We need to be listening really, really well. We, we, we need to be paying attention. We need to be curious about things and asking questions. Because um, I, I tell you, I am convinced the Lord prompts us. The Lord is at work in the lives of people around us hundreds of times a day. But often we just miss it. We're either too busy or we're not paying attention or we're not using all of our senses and, and we, just, we just miss opportunities dozens and dozens of times every day. I wanna, just, I wanna give you a little example. I mean, I could share with you hundreds of exa examples where I was paying attention and just beautiful things happened. And then I could share with you 200 examples where I missed it. <laughs> I was just too busy 
or I felt like the Lord was prompting me to do something or say something, and I just thought to myself, eh, that's a little awkward. You know, <laughs> Surely you're not asking me to do that. But I'm a, uh, so I just want to give you the most recent example of this, just uh, I hope as an encouragement to you. So last week I was in Houston, and I was getting ready to go back home, and I sat down at the airport. And those of you that travel, you'll notice a, a lot of airports now are installing these little almost like iPads in the restaurants where you can scroll through the menu, pick what you want, uh, and then swipe your card and go ahead and pay for it. And you don't even have to talk to a waiter uh, until, you know, the food is prepared and they bring it out to you. Well, I did that. I sat down. And the whole time, this is one of my good days, um, I just sat there and just was trying to just take notice of what was going on in the restaurant. And there was this young kid, young African-American kid, probably 19, maybe 20 years old, was a waiter, and he was killing it. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw someone just serving people so well. I mean, he was doing his job just on an amazing level. Um, every time someone sat down, he asked them how much time they had before their flight, so he knew if uh, he needed to speed up. Every time someone got up, he said, enjoy your flight. I mean, I just watched him just taking care of people. Uh, so at one point then, when he came over, I, I just said, dude, you are really good at your job. I said, I've just been watching you, and, and really, you just, you just do a great job. And he was really touched by that. He said, oh, thank you very much. I mean, I could tell he was really appreciative, kind of word of encouragement. And I said, but I've got a question for you. I said, this, you know, this new kind of system of paying for our stuff, um, I said, I, I bet it's really efficient, right? I mean, because you don't have to come out and wait on people and wait for them. And I said, but I'm curious about it. Does it affect your tips? And he kind of made this cringe face, and he said, yeah. He said, it really does. He says, because you might not have noticed, and I didn't, he said, but a tip is added on, and it was like 10%. And, you know, for him, he does such a good job, he would get more than 10% for most people. And he said, most people don't even know it adds a tip on. He said, the people that do notice, he said, it's the ones that don't want a tip. He said, they actually ask, hey, so how can I take the tip off? So I tell you, just sitting there and watching him, the Lord, I mean, just, it wasn't audible, but I just, a strong impression that I was supposed to tip the kid really, really well. And I keep some extra large bills folded up in my billfold, not to hide from my wife, but, <laughs> but for these kinds of reasons. I mean, I think there's better ways to bless people than just financially, but I think one of the ways we can bless people is financially. And if we're paying attention, we'll run into people all the time that just need a little financial encouragement. So I just, the Lord just said, man, you need to give them a, a super good tip. So I took one of these larger bills out, and I didn't want to just leave it on there, so I watched until I had eye contact with him. And when he looked at me, I mean, he knew what I was doing. I kind of raised it up so he could see it. And I could see, he, first off, he put his hands over his heart, and I could see he was getting emotional, and he just said, and I left. But later I was thinking, how do you think the rest of his day went? I mean, as not that he could up his game much more, because I thought he upped his game really good as it related to serving people, but... How do you think he served people the rest of that day and the day after that and the day after that? My point is just constantly we have opportunities to be a blessing to people. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And a lot of times those blessings can just come from words of encouragement. It might be buying someone's gas or their groceries or giving a super good tip. Um, but that doesn't happen if we don't pay attention. We, if, if, if it's really about God's mission and what God is doing in the world, we need to become great listeners. We can become great observers, and we need to engage in the art of noticing, and we need to notice and pay attention to what's God doing in the lives of the people around us, okay? So the first D word is discover. What is God doing? The second D word is the word discern. So if the first question is what is God doing, the second question is in light of my gifts and resources, how does God want me to participate? 
And I think this is actually harder than discovering. So in other words, when we discover what God's doing, we have to say, in light of the gifts and resources God has given us, how does he want us to lean into that? And I think the first half of that little sentence is important, in light of our gifts and resources. In other words, you can't do it all, right? I mean, the, the needs are just too great. You can't do it all individually, you can't do it all as a family, and you can't do it all as a church family. But God has given you, your family, and your church family certain gifts and resources. So we need to match those gifts and resources to what we're discovering God's doing in the lives of other people. So discover, discern, the third D word is the word do. I told you this wasn't rocket surgery. The word do, the reason I say it, put that in there is I think when we really discover what God's doing and we try to match the gifts and resources he's given us to what he's doing, there's going to be times Jesus is going to ask us to do costly things. I call it costly discernment. And I just think we have to decide, are we going to be obedient to costly discernment? If, if, are we going to be obedient when that thing that Jesus is asking us to do is, is risky or costly or messy? We've just got to decide, I think, on the front end, am I going to be obedient? And then the last D word is the word debrief. So I'm convinced when we engage in God's mission, we must carve out time and space to come back together with other believers, and we need to debrief or reflect on what God is doing. So in other words, we need to come back together with other believers and say, what do you see God doing? What did you sense? What did you see? What did you hear? So we need to debrief on what God's doing out there, but also we need to debrief what God's doing in here. In other words, we need to debrief with each other about how God is shaping and transforming our hearts as we're engaging in his mission. I actually think that's a crucial component of discipleship. I mean, real discipleship is when we engage in God's mission. I say all the time, how on earth can we be discipled into the ways of Jesus if we're not engaged in the mission of Jesus? So, discover what God's doing, discern how he wants us to participate, decide if you're going to be obedient to do what God's called you to do, and then find time to debrief. So I just want to remind you of that verse from John chapter 20, verse 21, one more time. Jesus says, just as. In other words, some translations say, in a like manner. So just as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are indeed ascending God. And then you saw fit to send your son into the muck and mire of us to redeem and reconcile not just us, but all of creation. And Father, I just pray that you would not allow any of us to stay in that space, that we, but we would be motivated to step into the muck and mire of this broken world. We would recognize you have sent us there. And then as we embed our lives in the gospel in those locations, I pray that you help us to become great noticers, great observers, and then give us the wisdom and the courage and the boldness to be obedient to what you've asked us to do. And may you receive all the glory and the honor. For it's in your name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.